Welcome back to the Segmentus Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fritz. It is Monday, October 11th. The, I guess the, the meat of the season has wrapped up over the weekend. We had Lombardia, the race of the falling leaves, the sort of traditional end to the men's world tour season, and the women's tour wrapped up in the UK. We've also got a bunch of tech news for you today. Some pretty large mergers and acquisitions news uh, with Durrell and Pawn, two of the largest companies in cycling, largest corporations in cycling. We've got most of our usual crew today. Abby is unavailable, but in her stead. Dane Cash, how are you? Good. I, I, well, you know, I don't really think about this until just now when you said it, but what is a stead? I mean... I, don't really I understand what you just said when you said in her stead, <laughs> but I don't, I don't really, I couldn't really explain to you exactly what that means, you know? I just, uh, you know, it's best not to overthink it, Dane. No, I, I want to <laughs> overthink it. I, that, that's, that's what I do. Sorry to derail your intro I guess in her place? Here. What is a stead? I mean, we have the internet right in front of us. Yeah, I, that's, we could always look that up. A stead. The place or role that someone or something should have or fill. Perfect. Used in referring to a substitute. You're an adequate substitute, Dane. Thanks. I'm really glad I was able to derail the intro for this long. It's been like a minute <laughs> since you started, so I'm really happy with this. <laughs> Shoddy Dave, how are you? All is good. Yeah, no complaints whatsoever. I'm just looking at a bike from our uh, today's sponsor, but we'll get to that in a minute. It surprised me, actually. Ooh la la. And for our Nerd Nugget discussion later and all the... Well, it's going to be a tech-heavy episode, actually. James, how are you? I had a great mountain bike ride yesterday, but I unfortunately crashed and fell down a hill and landed oh. directly on my back. So my back's a little Ooh. tweaked today. But Ooh. otherwise, it was an awesome ride, and it was beautiful. And ibuprofen is a wonderful, wonderful thing. <laughs> and at least you you tweaked your back doing something cool. Because usually when I tweak my back, it's like, oh, I like, stood up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wrong. I don't know how you stand up wrong, but, you know, you get into your 30s and all of a sudden standing up uh, requires careful attention. Yeah. <laughs> that it didn't used to. <laughs> start, start, getting, all right. start getting wood when you do your back by opening the Tupperware wrong or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've tweaked my neck by shampooing before, so I'm, I'm already, uh, I'm well on my way there, Shadi. Shadi, we must hear from Continental today. What do they got for us? Well, something really interesting, actually. Here we go. Continental is celebrating its 150th anniversary by making a limited edition gravel bike. Yeah, that's right. I said bike, not tyre. The ultralight gravel frame is designed for comfortable handling and efficient power transmission with a unique Continental yellow paint job. The bike features very special all-yellow Continental Terra Trail tyres. The Trail Terras are fast across asphalt with exceptional grip off-road. For more comfort on your next gravel adventure, made to get you where you're going over the rougher stuff and terrain. Only 150 of these bikes are available and you can find more of them on bikecomponents.de or continental-tyres.com. Go and have a look at him. I just brought it up here, actually. And it looks pretty damn smart. The tyres look awesome. I'm really hoping they do them... Uh, not just for this bike, but for sale as well, because the colour's absolutely rad. Is that the right there word? There used to be more 
Oh yeah, fully fully rad. There used to be more tires that were entirely one color. You know, like the old. I don't know if I can say this in the middle of a Conti ad, but the old green Michelins, for example. I used to love those things. Those had tan sidewalls. Oh, that's true. Just FYI. Green tread. Green tread. Green tread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. More of that. More more, more colored tires, I think. I just want to know who makes his frame for them. But them tires are wicked. Terra Trail, bright orange, 40 millimeters. Lovely stuff. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring this week's episode. Let's dive right into it. So we're going to do we're going to do a little race and chat first and foremost. Actually not first and foremost. I I I've lied already. I've lied already because uh though this is racing tangential, it is not actually racing. It is a competition we're going to start with. Close enough. Uh you've probably seen you've probably seen the news over the weekend that uh Nairo Quintana Quintana was on a game show in Colombia, uh, specifically, and I've never seen this game show before, The Masked Singer. Dane, wh- wh- why was Nairo in a, in a lizard suit? Um, well, if you're asking how's the competition work, that I can tell you. If you're asking why specifically he was in a lizard suit, I don't, I can't really give you the full answer. But I, the long and short of the way The Masked Singer works is that uh, celebrities dress up in these elaborate costumes. Uh, in which you cannot see their face, and so you are judging them based on their performance alone, and uh, and then they perform. And in, in this case, he performed a, a reggaeton version of the Rhythm of the Night, which was a pretty cool song. Uh, go watch the video, I would say. I can't was, really tell how much... Was he... it? No, no, no. The reggaeton, is a, that's a brand new remix, so it is a good song. We'll, we'll play some. We'll play some. We're pretty sure this is Nairo singing. Possibly like auto-tuned, probably auto-tuned in some way. We think this is Nairo. Yeah, so... He, I guess he got voted off, because that's, that's what determines that you have to reveal your identity. Um, and so yeah, you got to see Nairo in a chameleon outfit, and then Nairo with, with all the outfit except the, the head, so then you could see his own... You know his own face, uh, which was cool. I just, I just love that in Colombia these guys are that level of celebrity. I think that's fantastic, right? I mean, like, what's the equivalent? Like Alex Howes, love him to death. Probably not going to get invited on the American version of this show, right? Probably not. Like Wayne Brady, T Pain, and Subkus. That's who's on the the Masked Singer. That's probably not <laughs> happening anytime soon. But maybe someday cycling's popularity will will wax again. If you could see another pro cyclist on the mass singer, who would it be? Julian Alaphilippe. I mean, we've seen him do some some dancing and singing, some uh, some videos that that Quickstep shared over the years. I feel like he could be a, a contender. That's true. I was thinking, what other game shows would like pro cyclists be like good for? So obviously, Guillaume Martin would be good for. Do you have Countdown in the States? It's like a word and numbers game. No. Or. Tom DeMoulin would be good on, is it Wheel of Fortune? Because you, you need somebody who's lanky and tall to be able to lean over and spin that wheel. Because whenever you watch that program, it's got someone short on it. They always find it difficult, don't they? <laughs> they have to put them up on a stool. Yeah. Yeah, Naira wouldn't be good for that one. That'd be, that would be bad. Anybody good on Jeopardy? You would be good on Jeopardy. 
I know that's big in the States. Well, there's quite a few, most of them on the women's side who have advanced degrees. The the vast majority I'm thinking of are on the women's side, have advanced degrees. I think (laughs) you'd probably want to go into the women's peloton for someone with with a PhD. Not a lot of that in in the men's side. No, no. Although Tim DeClerc just got his master's, I believe, was was it? it? Took him, took him twelve years or something like that because he was doing it on the side while being a professional bike racer and and uh, the tractor of the peloton, spending his years hauling the Koenig Quickstep around. But yeah, he just graduated actually with a, I think it was like some sort of physical science, you know, nutrition, some sort of physiology kind of degree. Anna Kiesenhofer, another one. I think she'd be she'd be okay on Jeopardy. Uh, bit of a math whiz, science whiz. I'd really prefer to see most of them on the Mass Singer, honestly. Yeah, the idea of the competition is pretty uh, pretty out there. A couple years ago, we we proposed the idea, Rupert and I, during a Tour de France podcast, of having uh, a sort of reality TV show during the Tour de France in which the journalists got to vote. Uh, professional riders off of the of the bike race. I think this would be a fantastic television show. Actually, like if you give a bad quote, we're like, you're out, voted off the island. I like that, you have That's to go good. home now. <laughs> All right, let's move on from Nairo Quintana on a game show. As fantastic as that was, because we had we had a lot of excellent racing last week and over the weekend. Uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time on the women's tour because. Abby and Lauren and the rest of the crew have spent a fair amount of time on that over at Freewheeling. And you should head over there if you want the full breakdown of the women's tour. But we can briefly mention that Elisa Balsamo, Balsamo. I think it's Balsamo. Dane? Yeah. Balsamo. We're, we're, if any, any Italians out there can tell us the, pronounce, the correct pronunciation of the new world champion. Uh, she took her first victory in the world champ stripes at the women's tour. Uh, Lauren Weebus took a number of stages, and Demi Vollering took the overall in that race. As always, fantastic racing at the women's store. The Peloton loves racing in the UK. It's 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 hard, 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 hard racing. Uh, and particularly, I think this point in the season was particularly difficult, and in particular because a huge portion of the Peloton was racing with wrapped up hands and bandages all over the place because they had just come from Paris Roubaix on Saturday. But fantastic racing, nonetheless. Unfortunately, no live television coverage of that this year. Again, another topic that Abby and crew have dug into uh, in some depth over on Freewheeling. It does sound like they're going to try to bring that back for next year. But that was uh, that was unfortunate because this is a race that has spent. You know, it's it's I think genuinely known as one of the one of the races that sort of truly cares about about growing the women's side of the sport. And they just couldn't pull enough cash together for TV this year. Also over the weekend, Lombardia, the final monument of the year, won, of course, by Tata Pogaccia, who seems to just kind of win everything this year. In fact, Dane, you wrote on our little rudge sheet today that we should discuss just how spectacular Pogacar's season has been. The, the numbers are quite astounding, and I know that one of the stats that came over the weekend was uh, was that he joins, I think, just Merckx and Kopi, having won two monuments and a Tour de France in the same year, right? That's pretty good company to be in, I would say. The question is, will he get as grumpy as Merckx when he's that 
same age as him then. <laughs> I don't think he will. I feel like he's got a he's got a different he's got a zest for life, does young Tade. Well, maybe Merckx did when he was twenty one too. He may have a long yeah, that was a long time ago. That's true. <laughs> I feel like with Pogacar, his dominance has been such that uh there's not even been it hasn't even been close in a in a lot of his big big wins. Um obviously last year's tour was a different story. It was it was a stunning reversal of fortune for his compatriot Primoz Roglic, but this year Pogacar just just crushed everybody at the tour, and now he's got two other monument wins, and it's it's such that I, I feel like that hurts him in sort of the conversation department because we're always talking about Van Aert versus Vanderpool and Alaphilippe as well. I guess this sort of like three rider battle across many of the classics this year, and if you want to look at who the best classics rider was of those three, it you know it, it's it's tough to say, but but Tadi Pogacar just was head and shoulders above the rest, so. It, it really isn't tough to say. There's there's not even much of a conversation how much better he is uh, than than everybody else in the races that he really targets. And I think that hurts him in terms of kind of the, the PR department just because it's there's less drama to talk about. He's that he's just that good. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I like I think you have to sort of I think you have to kind of appreciate that kind of dominance, right? It's it's, it's maybe a little bit less fun in the moment, but you know, so was Merckx, so was Indurain, like so was Kopi in that those type of of athletes because they are so dominant they're the ones that we will be talking about in 30 or 40 years right even if in the moment just them winning everything is not as exciting uh you know even like mercs for example the uh every single year throughout his his tour de france reign for example that they're there was always somebody that the the French public or or L'Equipe would sort of try to get behind as the as the major, the major uh, somebody who could take him on. It rarely worked, right? They you know, but courses were changed, routes were altered, uh, Tour de France's were built to try to beat someone to, or to allow someone to beat Eddie Merckx. It's just like it is today. It, it's. That, that that level of dominance is is people try to avoid it. They try to build around it, but it just is what it is. And it, frankly, like I said, thirty years from now, he's the rider from this from this era that we will be talking about. I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's uh, it's a shame that I think he hasn't gotten as much PR as he deserves. Uh, and and I think there's one particularly surprising aspect of, of what he's been able to do this year, last year as well. Um, and, and you have to hand it to Roglic. I think for the same reason. For basically a decade, with the exception of Vincenzo Nibali, uh, and, and even he wasn't really doing it when he was at his peak as a Grand Tour racer, it was a little bit later, uh, the guys who won Grand Tours, they didn't, they didn't contend in one-day races. Uh, I'm mostly saying this because Chris Froome didn't contend in one-day races, and he won all the Grand Tours for this long period, so that kind of ruled, it, ruled out Grand Tour winners competing in, in the, in the one-day races. Uh, Froome was not the best, to put it lightly, at one-day races. If you look at his record... It's pretty astounding how not the best he is. Uh, but but then, you know, Nibali kind of changed that a little bit because he he could win uh, in Lombardia. And now Roglic and Pogacar are constantly contending for one-day races, whether they're Ardennes Classics. Um, yeah, obviously, Pogacar went out and won Lombardia this past weekend. Worlds, when the, when the course is hard enough. Uh, Olympics, whatever it is. And that's added a whole new element, uh, dimension to their kind of their careers and I, I think it's amazing and really great for the sport that the guys who win the, the tour are contending because when I talk to people who don't know cycling it's kind of hard to explain to them why the best racers aren't at all the best races and this kind of helps that a little bit 
And, and and just think about how much our perspective has shifted, right? I mean, we were so used to Grand Tour riders, and in particular the top Tour de France riders, doing basically nothing else for so long. That remember, like when Wiggins and Garrett Thomas, when they did Roubaix each a couple times. And granted, Roubaix is a totally separate beast, and we haven't seen Pogacar do Roubaix yet. But even so, there was this huge hype and hullabaloo because it was like, oh man, you know, Tour de France contenders are doing one days again that aren't just Liège and just Lombardia, which is like kind of the only two that they would kind of drop themselves into, right? Now we've we we our our perspective on this has shifted so far. It's become the norm, right? We're we're expecting this from Pogacar, expect this from Roglic, we expect it from Julian Alphilippe, right? Who kind of comes at it from the opposite direction. I think it's fantastic, and it's 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 kind of what we were talking about with uh well, for example, like the Rafa Roadmap series that we did around this time last year. We we're talking about sort of changing the schedule up, changing the calendar up to basically force more top riders to face each other in more races, right? That's one of the sort of big, big goals of any any sort of rethink of the calendar. But some of it can just come down to the riders themselves. I mean, in very much the same way as you can design the best race course anywhere, but it can be boring if the racers make it racing. <laughs> It can be boring if the racers make it boring. The racers make the race. The racers make the season, right? And so if they decide, if Pogacar decides to show up at all these other races and Roglic decides to show up at all these other races, it it helps the entire season, I think. And and frankly, like, is a really, really good thing for the sport. Something that was missing for 20 years, 30 years. I mean, you could basically go back to like Indurain was was sort of one of the first guys to to really stop doing a lot of other races he did some and then Armstrong really shut that off right uh it's been a long time since we've seen tour winners do this kind of thing you've got to wonder at what point and if they do start to fall uh, at yeah they don't win a grand tour whether it's the tour of well a zero or they don't win like uh, a major classic where they go right I'm just going to go for this now. You've got to wonder if that's going to gonna happen or they're just going to be like, right, yeah, let's hit every race like they have done for the past, well, two years now. I mean, you, you could make the argument that the only reason, reason Pogacar does this sort of thing is he can. <laughs> he can just show up and win, right? He doesn't have to peak for Lombardia. Uh, but Roglic does it too. Roglic shows up all these races and, and doesn't win a lot of them. So... He does win many, but he doesn't win a lot of others, right? I mean, Lombardia over the weekend, he he definitely did not have the legs there. So you can make that argument, but I, I still think that like for the good of for the good of the sport, for the good of us fans, riders that want to do this is a good thing. So whether you want to, whether you want to, whether you whether you rely on them doing it of their own volition or you build systems that basically force them to, the end result is much much more entertaining racing. I think. Yeah, I think also. It helps that they're just one day. You know, you don't have to. It's not like you, you're trying to do the Giro and the Tour in the same year. Uh, that The amount that you're kind of changing up your training is, is going to be significantly less. If you're you're going to the Ardennes Classics and that's sort of a secondary goal for you beyond the Tour, it's a little bit different from going to the Giro, which is three weeks of racing, as opposed to just one week in Wallonia. Uh, and, and I think that, that helps. Uh, so, again, another point in favor of doing the one-day races and maybe a little bit unfortunate for the Giro because... That race, I think, has seen its fortunes decline a little bit in the last two decades. I think it's nice to see that they respect not just the major races, that they respect all the races and that 
with doing that, it's actually going to bring, hopefully bring the level of, or, or the awareness of all these other races up, up a level than what they currently are or what they used to be. Yeah, sending all the big names and them actually hitting it out rather than just using it as a, a leg opener or a, a test bed for a future race. I would I would say is in the future, if, it, if we keep seeing this, going to be something where, yeah, the smaller races, such as the, the Tour of the Basque Country, that's now becoming bigger than it used to be because you get you're getting the guys like this turning up and hitting it out. I want to I want to return to Lombardia itself because uh, I think that actually the tactics were quite interesting in this race and in particular uh, De Kooning Quickstep and what they were up to. Now uh, Fausto Masnada came in second overall, uh, lost the sprint to Pogacar, which was I think kind of a foreseeable. Uh, ending there but he was the local boy he grew up in Bergamo and uh, so I'm not too surprised that Quick Steps kind of sort of gave him a bit more freedom than they maybe would have otherwise but basically what happened was Alaphilippe was in the group behind so Masnada's teammate was in the group behind and Masnada bridged across to Pogaccio which was super impressive and uh, he mostly did so on a downhill actually helped by the fact that Pogaccio had two pretty close calls uh almost crashing himself on the way down and the fact that like i said masnada is a local and has probably been down that those descents you know hundreds of times and so knew them quite a bit better nonetheless bridge like a 45 second gap 30 45 second gap very 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 impressive but then you've got the situation where up front uh, is a is a duo where you know Quickstep knew that they were going to lose that sprint. Basically, must not have sat on for the last what five, six, seven k. Even with that, maybe it was even longer than that ten k. Even with all that sitting on, the, the the likelihood of him winning that sprint was quite low. He even actually wanted to keep pulling to make sure they stayed on front. He was clearly getting instructions in the radio to not do that. Uh, when he first caught Pogacar, he, yeah, he pulled a lot more than he should have. He pulled way more than he should have when he first caught Pogacar. But nonetheless, he did stop after a while and was just sitting on. But Pogacar is a pretty good, pretty darn good sprinter for uh, all things considered, particularly in a group like that. And so he was probably always always going to win that one. And then the the dynamic behind was who who wants to pull Alaphilippe back up to the front, right? Because you've got this group behind where Alaphilippe is very likely to win the sprint out of that group of six or seven there. Maybe Valverde can kind of take it to him, possibly. But realistically... You know, Alaphilippe should win that. Maybe Woods. Anyway, nobody wants to pull Alaphilippe up. We've got this duo up front where Dakota Quistep was was pretty much doomed to fail. Like, did they screw this one up? When I first saw him as not a go, it felt to me like they'd messed this one up, mostly because I didn't think he would get across. Now I had to sort of reevaluate once he did get across. But even so... It feels to me like they would have been far better off sticking Mazda on the front, trying to pull him across to Pogacar, and then hope that Alaphilippe wins that sprint, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good reading of the situation, actually. I think there are... You see this in races a lot where uh, a team puts somebody up the road and then they don't do the work because they feel like, okay, well, we've got our guy up the road, so now we've earned ourselves the right to sit to sit on. Well, the, the problem is if, if your guy up the road isn't going to win the race then you're not really helping yourself by doing that. And I think that's exactly what happened here. I, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion that Pogacar was going to beat Masnada in the sprint. I, I just don't think we've seen enough from Masnada to know one way or the other. Um, but Quickstep should have known. I mean, they have his training files. They they should know what his, you know, 
what his power numbers look like and whether he can beat a Tadej Pogacar in a sprint. And it it wasn't that close in the end, even though Masnada had the position. I mean, Pogacar... It wasn't even a little bit close. <laughs> no, Pogacar let out. And Masnada was perfectly positioned that if he ever had a chance to take that sprint, he could have done it. And it wasn't close. Although I would I would argue if you if you know that you're probably the second best sprinter of that of those two and 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 Pogacar is willing to kind of come into line quite slowly, just lead it out. When in doubt, lead it out because at least you've got a bike length at that point that you can try to hang on to. Uh, you know, if you're not coming in at a if you're not coming in at 60k an hour, the importance of that draft is less. And so, if I was Masnada, I would have tried to lead that that sprint out. But that was just I think one among a number of mistakes that were made by by basically the whole team, uh, if you're going to try to beat a rider like Pogacar. I, I think the other thing is that this is the example. I, I can't think of how many times this year the the long-range attack, whether it's the early breakaway or somebody firing off from 40K out or whatever it is, from, from attacking from far out, just seemed to be way more successful this year than any time in recent memory. It felt like like half of the Grand Tour stages this year or more went to the breakaway. There, there were an, a bunch of breakaway stages at Grand Tours this year where it felt like Again, is what I was thinking as somebody reached the line, and then it would happen the next day, and the next day. And it was just all these breakaway days of the Grand Tours. A lot of the big one-day races have gone to long-range attacks. Not necessarily solo long-range attacks, but you know, maybe it's Casper Asgreen and uh, Matthew Vanderpool you know, linking up at Flanders, whatever it is. It's, it's guys attacking from far out, and, and the, the peloton or, or whatever's left of the peloton either not cooperating or not being able to bring those moves back. And it's really... It's been an interesting dynamic, and I'm not sure I can explain why. It could just be a coincidence that it's just happened all these times this year, but it really does feel like if you want to win a bike race in 2021, your your best option was to kind of put in a big attack from far out. And uh, if you're waiting, you're you're not going to win. Yeah, which is really strange because, it's again, it sort of runs against the, uh, well, what we've seen for a very long time now. I also can't explain it. I mean, teams are a little bit smaller than they were a couple of years ago, but that's been in place for a couple of years now, right? Like the the eight man teams of the Tour de France has been in place for a couple of years now. So I don't think that's the change. But yeah, I mean, at the Tour over and over and over again, they the, the sprinter teams kept miscalculating it. At some point, you think it's not a miscalculation and, and there's something else going on that it's just making it so they can't catch the riders out front. I don't know what it is, honestly. Uh, you know, improved aerodynamics of the solo rider like I, I you're talking about pretty small little percentages here i don't know what the i don't know what would be causing that that would have changed this year versus previous years maybe our listeners know maybe it's got something to do with last year as well like last year every race everyone turned up to had to be an absolute slug fest like and, and there was a lot of uh attacks a lot of long-range attacks that actually won races there and you just wonder if it's a knock-on effect from that like the last year's racing the dynamics changed because they had to because what there wasn't that many races on the calendar you got all the big big teams turning up to the smaller races and you do wonder has that yeah has that flowed into this season where the dynamics of the races have changed because of because of last year because of the way the races were run last year i think that's a good point yeah it's sort of like you know, trying to put that genie back in the bottle is difficult. Exactly. Trying, to, trying to make those races less chaotic after they had a, a year of chaos is is a difficult thing. That could be that could be it more than anything, really. Uh, you know, we've talked to lots of pros throughout both last year and this year who say that the racing is harder than it's ever been, partially because yeah, it's just faster from the gun, right? It's just it's just 
there's less it's less controlled it's less predictable makes for better racing for us better uh better tv viewing for sure what what about the likelihood that everyone is sort of just mentally tired and cracked at this point because i think it's safe to say that even for people who are not professional road bike racers that the last year and a half or so have been uh quite taxing i guess we could say for a lot of different reasons and Granted, I mean, professional bike racing in some ways is insulated from some stuff, but I mean, a lot of these racers have families, they have personal things to deal with, they have, it's it's just been a crazy and insane last year and a half, and everyone is pretty, everyone's pretty tired, and I, I, to me, I feel like to go about racing in the in the regular way where you're constantly controlling breakaways, and like, you know, just it, it takes a lot of effort to control a race like that, and I, I don't know. Like, I just kind of wonder if just everyone is just tired and just everyone's kind of just over it and everyone needs a vacation. Could be. Yeah, I, I wouldn't discount that at all. I think there's probably something to be said for uh, a wider spread of talent within the pro peloton too. There's there's sort of less dominant teams now, even if there are some quite dominant riders. I think there's probably a host of factors here, but well. Oh, We'll talk to some folks, see what, see what some, maybe see what some pros say. Uh, but it's definitely something we've noticed over the last year or so. I'll, I'll see if I can find out if it is the need of a holiday, James, because I'm actually going to the first team training camp of 2022 next week with a team. I, I won't say who, just in case I get in trouble. But yeah, when I'm there, I'll ask, ask the riders who are in attendance. I have one more question before we wrap up our racing stuff for today. Uh, I really liked having Roubaix in October. And I don't just say that because it was a wet one, although that was something something pretty special. And I don't just say it because there was the first ever women's Roubaix, which was also made it a pretty special weekend. I just liked where it was because it felt like a more... It just felt like a better end of the season. Like a Roubaix and Lombardia, World's Roubaix, Lombardia, felt like more of a, an event for the end of the season, which can often, at least to me, feel like it kind of just peters out, right? Like Lombardia usually does not get my my heart racing, generally. Uh, I don't know what it is about it. Maybe it's just the end of the season and I'm tired. But usually it's not a race that I, that I like absolutely need to turn on and watch end to end. Do we think that there's 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 some value in in backloading the end of the season a little bit more? You know, either doing something crazy like moving Roubaix to the fall time slot more permanently or just sticking some additional races at this part of the season. Now, I'm sure if you ask the riders, and in fact, I, I have asked some riders about this, they're going to say absolutely not. Because <laughs> at this point in the season, they just want to go on vacation. They just want to go stop riding, sit on the couch, you know, have a couple beers and and call it a season. But I think from a from a sort of like season long narrative kind of perspective, having these big marquee events right at the end is kind of nice. So you have, you know, a pile of them at the beginning of the season, and then you have this big marquee in the middle of the season with the Tour de France, bit of a lull, and then something to sort of cap off the year. I liked it a lot. I'm with you on that one as well. It's, I, I always find the classic season at the start of year feels like. Not a rush job, but it, there's so much going on that you you can miss a lot. So like, yeah, maybe moving Roubaix to October would give races like Ghent-Wevelgum a bit more breathing space and actually 
not raise the level of them, but raise the awareness of them. And yet, I always find like even after the Tour de France, it feels like you've you've got that lull. San Sebastian doesn't get the credit it's due. Then the Vuelta never gets the credit it's due, or very rarely does. And then it's kind of, yeah, it just fizzes out the end of the season after the Worlds. And I think yeah, Roubaix, especially having that the men's and women's doesn't just make it a single race event. Now it's like you've got that that whole weekend event going on, and then that followed by Lombardy. It give gives something for the the big strong guys at Roubaix to go at, and something for the, uh, the the climbers to go for at the end of the season as well. Rather than yeah, just everybody who ain't a, a climber just going home and drinking a few Devels. I feel like the 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 awesomeness of Holy Week makes me want to keep Roubaix where it is. But maybe we just move a different race. Can we just can we move San Remo to, to the end of the season? And it's the Italian classics are the are the end of the season and everything's in Italy and it's it's a whole different vibe from the Northern Classics. We keep the Northern Classics in, in you know March, April. But uh yeah, at the end of the year you get to do San Remo and then you just go up to the northeast a little bit and then you do Lombardia. I think that could be a really entertaining way of not of of having what we want, but not, you know, not pulling Roubaix away from the awesomeness of uh seven days of classics racing in, in northern europe that's true part of what made this fall so good was the fact that worlds is in flanders anyway right so that's not going to happen every year i would agree I, I, you know i think a lot of this some of this is is, is sacrilege anyway talking about moving san remo you know la primavera uh talking about moving roubaix but i don't know i just i liked i liked the end of this season i thought it was a really good way to cap this this season and and i there's got to be some way of sort of not fully replicating that, but at least getting a little bit closer. Let's have the Leuven. Let's have the Leuven course as a World Tour event after the Worlds from now on. Then just do it twice. Yeah. Do it then twice. <laughs> Two Roubaix. No, no reason why you couldn't do that. Roubaix, really. Paris, and Paris Roubaix. I'm sure it would be a very popular <laughs> option for the riders. Yeah. I mean, no, none of this is going to be popular. Any, any, any time you talk about moving things in the calendar, there's just, yep, got a hundred years of tradition that we're that we, we'd be bucking at that point. Anyway, let's move on from racing chat today. We've got quite a bit of tech stuff to talk about. Nerd alert! Nerd alert! Nerd alert! Nerd alert! James, the, nerd the first alert. one. Uh, I guess let's start with the let's start with the uh, acquisition news. Durrell and Pawn. So for context, what are these two corporations and, and how much of the bike world do they currently control? All right. Well, currently, Giant is the world's largest bicycle manufacturer, uh, largely due to the fact that they not only manufacture bikes for themselves, but also for a lot of other brands. Uh, Pawn, they're based in Holland, a uh, big corporation. They are you know, they have brands like Cervelo and Santa Cruz and Gazelle and uh, I think Focus might still be under their their umbrella. Uh, but they have a whole bunch of brands that are that are under the Pond umbrella, so it's a big conglomeration. And they have just taken over Dorel, uh, which is an American brand uh, in charge of brands like Cannondale and GT and Schwinn. Um, so with those two brands together now, they have overtaken Giant as the world's largest manufacturer of bicycles. So it's quite a big deal. Uh, supposedly, the deal uh, it, it was about 700 million euros, which is not an insignificant amount of money. 
so it's kind of a big deal. Uh, what it means, however, is is kind of unclear at this point. Um, surely there is going to be uh, some quote-unquote synergies going on here. Um, so who knows what's going to happen behind the scenes as far as, you know, like admin, sales, marketing, whatever. But um, in terms of dealer and distribution, that is really where a lot of the questions are going to come come about. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what is going to happen with their their dealer network and availability and stuff like that. Um, maybe longer term, it'll end up being that their bikes will be more readily found and available and in stock for people. It's hard to say. I mean, when you're a company that's that big, you probably are going to have some leverage with your manufacturing partners. Um, don't know yet. We don't really, don't really have a whole lot of info on this one, but I would imagine other brands that are not Giant and not Durrell and Pon uh, are certainly taking notice of this whole thing. So what do they own now? What's the list? Oh, jeez. The... What is the whole list? <laughs> I've, I've got it's, the list here if you want it. You read it. Yeah. Cannondale, Schwinn, Mongoose, GT, Charge, Kaloi, uh, Kid Tracks, Gazelle, Kalkoff, Focus, Santa Cruz, Cervelo, Swapfeets, Urban Arrow, BB Cycling, which is like the clothing and helmets and equipment bits and pieces, Lisa Bike, Union, Reserve Wheels, and Juliana. That's their bike um, bits and bobs. Not just the. So it's quite a lot. The, it's quite yeah, just yeah, it's a quite the portfolio there. Yeah, that's. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about this sort of. I bet people are worrying now. Conglomeration. They've, they've already saying, "Oh, carbon bikes are looking the same." I bet people are going, "Oh, blow me neck." It's gonna be cut, cut <laughs> and, copy and paste job. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, hopefully, all this consolidation that is going on in the bike industry doesn't lead to a situation like we had with, you know, American car company GM decades ago, where it's just this huge corporation uh, and, you know, everything kind of just ends up being looking kind of, kind of, kind of generic and all sorts of, you know, rebadging of things and kind of just like redressing up of things so that bikes look exactly the same. Um, and we were already seeing some of that, even with things like, like Ridley's and Eddie Merckx's uh, not too long ago, where the bikes were exactly the same, just under different labels. So hopefully with this Pond and Durrell thing, we don't have a situation like that because, you know, consumers aren't dumb and they can see through that kind of thing. And that sort of approach is just sort of the, the quick and dirty and kind of lazy approach. So hopefully that's not what we're, that, hopefully that's not what we're looking at here. Um, I don't think that it will be because already, again, Pond has an awful lot of brands under its umbrella and, Canon uh, and Dorel already has a lot of brands under under its umbrella, and you don't see a whole lot of just sort of rebadging of stuff, except for maybe Santa Cruz and Juliana. Those frames are the same, and they're just uh, different specs and paints and that sort of thing. But aside from that, there's not really a ton of just sort of shared products exactly, aside from spec. Yeah, I mean, we'll see some we'll see some reserve wheels probably on more more different bikes, or maybe they show up on Cannondales or something like that. Synergies, right? uh, more synergies, synergy. Love some synergy. Just love it. Synergistic. So we'll be keeping an <laughs> eye on this one to see what happens. Uh, this just broke this morning. So again, we don't really have a whole lot of information on this at all. Uh, I am hoping to get a hold of some dealers that are involved in both of these brands to see if they have had any communication to see what's going on there. Because um, they often, well, I'd say often, but certainly not always, have some more insight into kind of what how this is going to change things. We shall see. 
We shall see. Next in today's Nerd Nugget, a little recall. Just a small one, right? Uh, it's dealing with my favorite topic, fully integrated cabling up front. Oh, I love it. Love it so much. <laughs> love it so much. So, yes, this one hasn't actually been officially announced, but there have been enough leaks now at this point um, that Specialized is apparently starting to confirm to different outlets that a official recall of its Tarmac SL7 flagship all-around road racing bike is about to drop tomorrow, I believe. Um, and the problem there is a big one. They have an issue with the headset compression ring up top. Uh, and it's a unique compression ring that is required because of that internal cable routing. And apparently it is causing too much stress on those carbon fiber steer tubes. They're saying it's under particularly high impact, but who knows? Um, either way, those compression rings are causing an issue and steer tubes are cracking and breaking. Not good. It's like the one thing you don't want to crack and break. I think about that every single time I am descending down Lee Hill here in town. I guess there is, there's this big descent here in town. You, you can go quite fast on it. And there is a sweeping left-hand turn with a guardrail, a guardrail on the outside of the turn. And if you were to go over the guardrail, you would be going, it would not be good. It would not be good. And pretty much every single time these days when I come into that corner, I think to myself, and I have to try, I have to actively actively force myself to not think about too much but the thought goes through my head what would happen if my steering tube broke right here i try not to try not to think about that too I much can, i can tell you what would happen i had a steering tube break on me in 2001 it was an, an on an alan altec 2 tubing thing and uh i've got a few scars on the top lip from it spent a week in hospital don't remember much of that week at all and uh Possibly, just possibly might have got epilepsy from it, but we can't prove that. So, um, yeah, it's not a good thing when you steer a tube brake. So if uh, you have got a SL7, listen to Specialize and take it back to the, to the bike shop. Don't risk it. Yeah, and again, we don't have the official uh, notice just yet. I think, like I said, that's dropping tomorrow, I believe. Um, but it, it does apparently involve a stop ride notice. So the specialized is taking this quite seriously and it is quite a serious issue. I think anything involving a fork or steer tube or anything that doesn't have sort of any redundancy when it comes to the control of your bicycle uh, is involved. Uh, those are all important things. Uh, yeah, it is a stop ride notice and they, yeah, I mean, hopefully they're, uh, supposedly I, I would imagine they're re replacing forks, uh, if there is any sort of damage suspected or visible and, uh, I know that they are replacing compression rings up top with some other design. Um, but again, this is this is something that's dropping tomorrow, so we don't have a huge amount of info at the moment, but it doesn't sound great. Yeah, I, by the time this podcast goes up, it'll probably be on the internet. So Have I mentioned how out. much I love regular cable riding? Have I ever mentioned that? I'm not sure I've ever let that be known, ever. <laughs> what was it? Uh, it, was, it was Peter Sagan's mechanical... Roubaix, at Roubaix, had, you know, external... Well, they weren't external. They, they at least didn't go down through the, the headset. Uh, the, the you know, the shift lines, shift cables. It did look weird, though. Like, I'm, I'm so used to these hyper-integrated front ends now that it did... It looked a little bit strange, just those, those cables dangling out there in the wind. I think it looked... I thought it looked awesome. I know exactly what you're saying. That's it. All my bikes have cables dangling on the wind. So you know how I thought it looked. 
functional and easy to service. <laughs> That's what I thought. And do you, do you know what thought did not go through my head? Oh my goodness, he might be saving, a, he might be wasting a watt. It's true. It's true. I mean, maybe that's why he came in like 25th or whatever. Maybe, maybe. Had he only had internally routed cables, then it would have been a completely different Roubaix for him. He would have been way up front. Way up front. Yep. Yeah, what's wild to me is that this isn't like rare anymore. This is is specifically issues around uh, like the shape, either the shape of steer tubes that they can run lines internal or lines rubbing against steer tubes, or like some issue in the front end of these bikes where you fully integrated everything. You know, we had BMC had this had the, had this not that long ago. We've got Specialized now. It, it's it's like not a rare occurrence no. to have literally the worst type of failure you can possibly have on a bicycle over and over again. Well, here here's the thing, and this is something that we are definitely going to be talking about in much more depth tomorrow uh, during during our next Nerd Alert recording. Um, but steer tubes were already before all the internal routing stuff, what the design is, but you are invariably going to be making some sort of compromise. And that's not to say that those, that those compromises can't be overcome or that you can't be particularly clever in the design to make that sort of thing work, but it makes it harder and it makes it, it introduces more possibilities for or error, or manufacturing error, or some sort of you know, unforeseen design limitation, or whatever. Um, so when you put all that stuff in there, I, I mean, it, like you said, Kay, like, like just to be clear, Specialized is not the only company to have to deal with this. Is deal with this. This is not. This is becoming frighteningly common. And it, yeah, bike industry, cut it out. Like I don't care that you can't see the damn cables if my steer tube comes off then that is a problem. No one is going to care if your freaking <laughs> cables are hidden away from the wind. If your handlebar breaks off in your hand, cut it out. Love Angry James. It was spe- Specialized have already got to that 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 great uh, breaking point where it's like, is it worth it? Look at the Athos. That's got cables that aren't rooted internally up front. They don't go down the st- uh, steerer tube, do they? They've gone, right, let's, let's just get back to... Keep it simple. Let's go back to the old school ways. And I'm just wondering how many other brands are now going to be like, yeah, let's not risk it. You know how many? We've tried that. Let's go back to the tried and trusted method. You know how many? Not enough. That's what I say. My my guess is just just knowing how things go. And unfortunately, this is something that we we are talking to an audience that is more informed, more, more familiar with a lot of bike tech stuff in general. As far as the mainstream audience goes, they are still going to be looking at these bikes and thinking to themselves, that thing looks sweet. I don't want all those weird cables hanging out around there. That looks weird. Uh, so it's going to take some hard decisions or at least some extremely clever engineering to either really get this right so that no one ever has to deal with it and it's not a complete nightmare to work on or whatever. Or the bike industry just needs to make some hard decisions and be like, I don't care what it looks like. It is a huge problem if there is a functional compromise that has to be made to make this sort of thing look like this. I mean, do they just need to give it, give it more room? Like, they just need to make wider head Wireless tubes, basically? <laughs> like, what's the... You, you, you have that in some cases. Uh, FSA, uh, their, their internal setup runs uh, a larger headset bearing, so there's kind of more room to put stuff in there. 
Oh, but then the front end goes up. But then the front air, uh, the frontal area goes up, Kelly, and then you have aero compromises, and then blah 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 blah. <laughs> Just run the damn cables outside the frame. Cut it out. <laughs> it's yeah, it's not great. It's like probably one of the most popular new bikes on the planet, high end bikes, I should say, on the planet. Uh, and steer tubes are breaking. So yeah, if you've got one. Keep an eye out for that notice. We'll have, we are, there's going to be a story on cyclingtips.com soon, and we'll have the official notice up as soon as we get it. Make sure that if you are affected, you go and get that taken care of. Uh, and unfortunately, don't go on your ride today. And probably don't ride today. Yeah. All right. Time so I'll, for- I'm going I'm to re- refrain from, from uh, sharing my true feelings on this. <laughs> I'm gonna, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not hold back tomorrow. So Because today I'm going to... Today I've been a little more subdued, slightly. That was subdued, James. So if you want what, subdued. not subdued, subdued, James, uh, check out the next episode of Nerd Alert, our tech podcast. That's it for us today. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back next week. Another episode of the Cycling Tips podcast. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>